Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Shannon Hale is the Utah-based New York Times bestselling author of the Princess Academy series and Rapunzel's Revenge, as well as Austinland, which was made into a movie. Her latest, Amethyst, is on our UPR community book list. Shannon Hale joins us today to talk about her books, gender and reading, and other topics. As I mentioned, Shannon Hale, New York Times bestselling author of over 30 children's and young adult books, including graphic novel memoirs, Real Friends, Best Friends, and Friends Forever, and multiple award winners, The Goose Girl, Book of a Thousand Days, Newbery Honor Recipient, Princess Academy. She also writes books for adults, such as Austin Land, and co-writes books with her husband, Dean Hale, uh, such as the Eisner-nominated graphic novel, Rapunzel's Revenge, the best-selling illustrated chapter book series, Princess in Black. They live with their four children near Salt Lake City. Shannon Hale, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. Well, um, I want to uh, talk about a little bit of your background uh, for those, you know, a lot of people will be familiar with you, some not in our audience here. Um, so you say in your biography that uh, your mother says you were a storyteller from birth uh, at age 10, Started to write fantasy novels, but uh, I guess uh, in, in, never managed to, to finish those. Tell us about that. At 10, 10 years old, started to write. I did. I was always making up stories in my head. I would. I was like in my friend group. I was the chief game developer, per se. I would make up the games that we would play because I always had story ideas. It never crossed my mind that I could be a writer. I didn't know any writers, um, you know, growing up in the 80s. Back then, publishers didn't send authors uh, for children on book tours or into schools, so I thought they were extinct like dinosaurs, you know. Mm-hmm. It was, when then when I was in fourth grade, I had a teacher at Wasatch Elementary in Salt Lake City, Utah, who started us writing stories and poems, and I thought, oh, I could do this? All these stories in my head? I could write them down, and maybe they could end up in a library someday, and I was just hooked. Um, it took it took 19 years of writing before I was published, mm-hmm. but I instantly loved it. So was it always fantasy? Was that what you were writing? Mostly fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I loved to read back then. I love everything now. I am a person, mm-hmm. I guess, that gets bored easily. Um, a lot of writers tend to specialize in, in one particular genre. I've written just about every genre for every age group. Um, I love to challenge myself. So my first few books, like The Goose Girl and Princess Academy, uh, were fantasy novels, young adult fantasy. Um, I've done now memoir, graphic novels, murder mysteries, romantic comedies, a superhero, a science fiction. I've done it all. So uh, you say in your bio you were embarrassed to have such an impossible dream. Did you, I, I guess, uh, I don't know, hard, hard for you to envision that you'd become a writer? Yeah, it really was. Well, first, you know, I just didn't know anybody. It didn't seem like a realistic dream. You know, when you grow up with, you know, a, some you want to be a teacher, you, you actually meet teachers. This felt like pie in the sky. And additionally, you know, when I was little and cute and I would say, oh, I want to be a writer when I grow up, adults would say, oh, you're so cute. You can do anything, you know. And But I noticed that started to change as I got older, when I was in middle school, when I was a teenager, and I would say that, you know, the adult reaction was, ooh, you know, that's hard. You know, be realistic. And the reaction from the, my peers was, yeah, like, everybody wants to do that. Obviously, you know, you can't just do that. So I was embarrassed. I, I didn't really feel like um, 
I had the talent or the means or there was, I wasn't special enough. I felt like you had to be really special to have, uh, to make it as something like a writer. And so I stopped telling people because I, I, I didn't think anyone believed I could do it. And I wasn't sure that I could. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really come out of the writer's closet until I went to the, the university of Utah and, uh, got an English degree. And I told everybody I was going to be a teacher. Um, but eventually I decided, I, there really was nothing else that was going to make me happy. So once I decided to get an, an MFA in creative writing, that's when I kind of couldn't hide it anymore, and I had to admit this was my dream. What kept you going with this? I, I, I'm a writer, you know, whether I can make it as a career or not. I, I have to. Um, the stories are in my brain. I love to read. I love stories of all kinds, you know, great movies and television as well as, as books. And I'm just compelled. Like, I don't feel right when I'm not writing. So whether I got published and was able to, you know, support myself with my writing wasn't the factor whether or not I was a writer. Um, and it, did, it, it took a long time. I was years of rejections uh, and years of, you know, writing really, really bad stuff as I tried to develop my craft. Um, the thing about writing is it's a it's a funny it's a sneaky kind of art because you know most anybody who's you know literate can write something and so it feels like it shouldn't be that hard like I can go to the opera and I know I cannot sing like that I can watch a ballet and know I cannot do that leap I can watch or you know a basketball player play and know I cannot do that um, but it's deceptive. It seems deceptively easy. So it's easy to get discouraged um, when in the beginning as a writer, because um, we don't allow ourselves often to put in all the years it takes to develop that skill, just like it takes years to develop uh, the skill of playing an instrument, of using words to express yourself, of, of figuring out narrative flow um, and um, just story and how to use words as tools, that takes time. And I think not always the people who, you know, quote-unquote make it are necessarily always the, you know, chosen or they're the most um, worthy. It's just you have to be stubborn and persevere until not only until you train your brain to be good enough to do this, um, but until you also get there's always luck element, the right story at the right time with the right publisher. I'll refer people to your website, ShannonHale.com, ShannonHale.com. Uh, there you have you know, some great stuff, uh, including uh, under uh, under your books, under The Goose Girl, which is your, your breakthrough, uh, you have a section called Rejections, and you, ha- you give, <laughs> give advice to writers. You know, stick with it. You say stick with it, war- uh, writers. You're warriors, right? Stick with it. Um, but maybe don't try to publish your first draft or maybe not even your first book. Tell me about that. I don't know anyone, and I know a lot of writers now, who's published their first thing. That uh, That's just, you know, a myth that I think sometimes people think, I just have to come up with the right story, and if I just nail it the first time, then I've made it. Um, but again, it's, there, there's that skill involved, and writing writing a, a, a novel is such a huge accomplishment, and anybody who does that should feel so proud of themselves, because it is a tough thing to do. But also... Um, to give ourselves time to keep learning and developing. I'm so, you know, when I was a teenager and writing, 
I wished I could have been published then. I felt ready. I look back now on what I wrote, I'm thinking, oh, I'm so glad that somehow I didn't get published because I would be so embarrassed. Uh, yeah, to, to give themselves time. I hear from a lot of kids who are writers and they want to know how to get published. And my advice is always just, you know, publishing is actually not the fun part. Writing is the fun part. Just keep writing for fun. Because once you get into publishing, there's business stuff. There's actually less time to write. There's a lot of rejection. There's Everybody's got an opinion about you. It, it can be really um, soul-crushing, that process. So focus for as long as you can just on the craft. So with the Goose Girl, you, uh, you you finally you went through dozens of agents. Finally, found an agent who would uh, you know advocate for you, and then and then it's on to publishers and lots of rejections. You you uh, on your website here, you have three rejection letters. Why, why did you do that? Or I think maybe four. It said it's several rejection yeah. letters. Yeah, I, got, I had more. I had more rejections than what I put up there. But I just put up four of or three or four or whatever of those letters because I just think they're they're funny. Um, the the goose girl, you know these rejection letters. They they some of them. One of them says that they found my writing stiff, cliched, and self conscious. And I will apparently never forget those three adjectives <laughs> because it is so hard. And another one says um, this book will not engage young readers. It will not maintain the interest of young readers. And they were pretty thorough rejections. And um, that book did eventually find a publisher. I went on to get published. Um, it, the year it came out was voted by teens across the U.S. as one of their top ten favorite books. It was voted onto the NPR's list of best hundred books of all time for teenagers. Eighteen years later, it's still in print with over thirty printings. It's been translated into I don't know twenty plus languages. So those people who rejected it, they were. They were right to reject it for them. It it wasn't the right book for them, and that's fine. Not every book is right for everybody. But they were wrong that it wasn't right for anyone. And so I mostly put those letters up just to show, hey, when people reject you, you know, it doesn't mean that there's no worth, that you have no worth, that no one is going to love it or love you. You have to, you have to keep trying. It's kind of like falling in love, isn't it? Like, it feels like mm-hmm. a miraculous thing when two people who just fit right find each other and feel the same way about each other, that can take a lot of time and a lot of searching. What was your thought when when it became a hit? Did you say, okay, I've made it? Uh, You said 19 years to to reach that point? Yes. Uh, Well, getting published was amazing. I, I mean, beyond, like, birth of my children, like, the best, really, event of my life, it was so incredibly validating. But I I had a very slow start. I um, The Goose Girl, my first book, was not a bestseller. It didn't win any major awards. Um, I think the first printing of it was 10,000 copies, you know, not like these million copy printings that people get. Um, I was published by a very small press um, when I was the second author that they acquired in the United States ever, and only three people worked at the publishing house in the U.S. when I when they acquired me. So I didn't have a book tour. I didn't have a lot of publicity. So it was, it was a very quiet start, um, and that was fine. That was that was good. I no, I never felt like I've made it. Now I don't think you ever feel that way in this business. I mean, even John Steinbeck said something like. Um, Publishing makes horse racing look like a stable industry. Mm. It 
you you always feel like this is going to go away at any moment. Uh, it's a very fickle industry. Um, but my third book um, won a Newbery Honor, and that really changed things for me. I still didn't make enough money that we could live. I took, uh, I think, 15 books. I, had, I think I'd published 15 books before our family could live on the income from the books as our sole income. Um, so it was many years of just working and writing and and keep pushing forward. By the way, you write, uh, this funny scene, you write uh, when you receive the Newbery, informed of that. Seems like all these awards, uh, you know, MacArthur Genius, uh, the Nobel, they they wake you out of bed. It's like five in the morning, I guess, uh, which is the case yeah. for, for you, barely coherent, yeah. and and the whole committee's on the on the speakerphone with you. But uh, it must have been a, a just a watershed moment for you. It was, yeah. It was. I was only my third book out, you know, and um, at the time I was the only Utah author to ever receive a Newbery Honor in its you know eighty year history. So it was. It felt very. It was hugely significant. The Newbery Honor is given by a committee of. Um, librarians who who devote their lives to loving and appreciating children's literature, and they take it extremely seriously. And it's a huge honor for everybody on the committee to be chosen to the committee, and they spend all year reading all books that are are um, qualified and having many in-length, uh, in-depth discussions about it until finally choosing the few that they are want to award. Um, to be recognized by people like that, um, it's incredibly validating. There's so much self-doubt, I think, you know, in the arts especially, because there's no absolutes, right? There's no there's no way to really tell if what you do matters, ultimately. It's strange. I mean, I grew up doing theater, and when you're on stage, you could feel if the audience was with you. You could feel their energy. If it's comedy, you can hear them laugh. You can hear the applause. You get that immediate feedback. With writing, you write and you send it off, and you just don't know. You don't know. Is anybody reading it? Does anyone care? Did all that time and those hours and hours, hundreds of hours I spent, you know, going over every word and agonizing over every decision, does it matter to anybody? Um, Because that's ultimately what art's about, is sharing with other people and that connection. And so writing is a very strange, a lonely business in that way. And, you know, you try not to focus on, awards or things like that, because they are capricious, absolutely. But it also is very validating to know somebody noticed. Somebody Mm. noticed what you were trying to do, and they cared. Yeah, I noticed uh, you, and you just mentioned it there, you've done improv. Um, Yes. And you mentioned the immediate feedback. How is that? I, I... if I imagine myself doing that, I'd I imagine terror of, of, of bombing. I guess there's some of that, right? But I, how was that? I, that's what I imagine now, too, Tom. I don't know how I did it. I was young and fearless, I guess. I Yeah, I did I did a lot of community theater growing up. I um, Someone said to me recently, because I was talking about how my lack of confidence when I was young, and, and she said, what? But you did theater. I always thought you were so confident. And that's such a funny thing because I think theater people are—they they, don't—we don't didn't do it because we were confident. We did it because we're so desperate for approval and love, maybe. <laughs> but I did enjoy it. I enjoyed the social aspect of it. I enjoyed rehearsals more than anything, and just being part of this team working together. 
and improv, like anything else, it's it's skill based. It took a lot of rehearsals and a lot of practice to learn how to do it well. And then um, I did it with a group of friends for a while, and it was great fun. And after I hadn't done it for a year or so, I thought, oh, I could never do that again. <laughs> it is tough, but it has um, the skills in that were really useful for writing. That kind of sense of when you end up somewhere where you weren't expecting, see where it takes you because it can it could take you somewhere where you didn't know. You know, you walk onto stage and you think that you're a cowboy riding a horse. And someone says, that's a nice dinosaur you got there. And suddenly you're like, oh, I'm not in the Old West where I thought, where am I now? And you just go with it to see what you have to let go of that control in some ways. And writing, um, it's like a mix of control and letting go. I think there's this balance. It's like holding um, a handful of marbles. If you squeeze too tight, they all fall out. If you hold too loosely, they all fall out. You have to find this sort of balance of of, you know, instructing the story where to go, where it makes sense, but also allowing for the, the, the serendipity and for the discovered moments. If you've uh, just joined us, we're talking with Shannon Hale, uh, Utah-based New York Times bestselling author of Princess Academy series, Rapunzel's Revenge, Austin Land, other books. The latest is Amethyst, uh, which is on our UPR book list. And uh, we'll uh, take a break now, a uh, brief break. We'll come back and have more with Shannon Hale following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and USU's Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practices. Learn for the, learn the Signs Act Early Utah. Helping parents spot developmental milestones that children should reach from two months to five years of age. Information at idrpp.usu.edu slash act-early-utah. Support also comes from the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, presenting Symphony Concertante, OP81, Joseph Youngen and Requiem OP9, Maurice Durafley, with guest organist Bradley Welch, Saturday, March 19th at 7.30 p.m. in the USU Danes Concert Hall. Details at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. This is Science by the Slice. Once considered relatively rare, dengue fever is popping up throughout the globe, including the United States. Most people infected with the mosquito-borne virus recover, but the disease can cause lethal complications. Curiously, while people who have recovered from the virus develop immunity to the strain that infected them, they've often become more susceptible to infection by different strains of the virus. USU data scientist Kevin Moon is a part of a multi-institution team developing deep neural networks to extract detailed data from large data sets collected from infected people in an effort to find preventative measures and therapies. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Shannon Hale. Uh, she and her family live in uh, near Salt Lake City. And uh, she's New York Times bestselling author of the Princess Academy series, Rapunzel's Revenge, Austin Land, other books. And uh, she's the winner of the uh, Newbery Award and uh, other uh, major awards. And her latest uh, book, Amethyst, is on our UPR community book list. Pleasure to talk to Shannon Hale today. So, Shannon Hale, before we uh, go and talk about some of your other books, I wanted to uh, spend just a little more time on the, the Goose Girl. 
understand from uh, reading some things on your website, by the way, shannonhale.com, uh, you were introduced to this tale and many others uh, from you and your sisters reading your mom's, as you call it, mammoth book of fairy tales. Uh, so, yeah. Sounds great. So uh, you, you gravitated toward uh, the Goose Girl. Why? Why is that, do you think? It was so strange and mysterious to me. It it wasn't a satisfying tale. Um, I, th- I feel like Cinderella is kind of like wrapped up with a bow and done. And you, you kind of understand what's going on there, and there it is. But the Goose Girl always left me asking questions. It's about a story about a princess who travels to another kingdom where she has an arranged marriage with a prince. But on the journey, her accompanying lady-in-waiting betrays her and forces her to pretend to be the maid, and the lady-in-waiting pretends to be the princess. And um, in my story, I, you know, I, I, I blew it up much, much larger than it was, but it, uh, it left me with questions like, why, why did the princess just go along with us? Um, there's a talking horse that, you know, never talks until it's dead. And, like, what's <laughs> what's going on there? Um, at one point, the uh, princess, who's in disguise as a goose girl, can control the wind to blow away the hat of a boy who's bothering her. Like, where did this come from all of a sudden? Wait, what? what, what how could she control the wind? What's happening? And then, you know, how does the prince feel about all this, you know? And there's just, it just left me with so many questions that I think that's where stories began, is with questions. If you kind of understand everything, there's not much for the the mind to puzzle out, and it takes a lot of puzzling out to, to write a novel. So it just gave me a lot of space and room to explore, and I was so intrigued by it that my brain wanted to work on it. Yeah, great opportunity. Yeah, to uh, because the the original tale is sort of unfinished itself, right? Or, or very brief. Yeah. Yes, very brief. Yeah. So I turned to yeah, it was, it was three. You know, these Grimm brothers tales are about three pages long, and it becomes a three hundred and eighty page novel. So you, there's so much room to develop characters, to to figure out what the magic system is, to turn it into a fantasy, um, figure out the relationships between the characters, and and figure out what you want to say. You know, what really matters. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the Princess Academy, of course. You won the Newbery Award for this. Um, this uh, you, you write about how this began. Tell us, how did this begin? You know, so, so many stories don't have, so many of the books, they don't have good origin stories. And this one is one I just, I heard the phrase, tutor to the princesses, um, and I thought, oh, that would be interesting, a, a story about uh, someone who tutors princesses, and I'm like a teacher of princesses, or what if there's a school for princesses? And then, then I thought, well, what if there is, what if they're not princesses? What if they go to a school to become a princess? Or what if one of them is going to be chosen to be a princess? Why would they be chosen? And, and you know, you're coming up with story ideas, it's always, you're always complicating them. How do you, how are they, how do they become more interesting? And for me, the thought was, what if they didn't want to be chosen? And then I start asking myself, why wouldn't they want to be chosen? And you start creating and building a community, there's this, you know, community who lives at the top of the mountains, mining uh, a quarry stone, and they're very poor, and they're very separated from the rest of the kingdom, but um, there's a tradition in their country where the priests divine where in the kingdom the bride of the prince will be found, and unexpectedly this time they choose Mount Eskel, this remote little mountain village, 
And so in a year's time, the prince is going to come up the mountain and have a ball and meet all the girls of this town and choose one to be their bride. So they set up an academy because these girls have never even learned to read, have never attended school, and they learn the things they need to know in case they're chosen. But they are very suspicious of these lowlanders. They don't think anyone's really going to be chosen. They really just want to go back to their families. Um, And that's where the story begins. And then, you know, just keep moving from there. Really, for me, it's, it's a story about education and the power of education to, to change a person and a place. Uh, it's probably something of you in all your books, right? Did you, uh, do you, I guess, do you probably don't set out consciously to, to, to do that? Do you, do you notice little snippets here and there from maybe your childhood or what you're going through as an adult or from your kids' lives in any of your books? Absolutely, 100%. I, I mean, if I wrote The Prin- Princess Academy today instead of 15 years ago, it would be a different book because I'm a different person. Um, there are always you know, snapshots of what I'm thinking about, what's important to me at the time. I'm increasingly now writing more and more graphic novels than novels. A part of that is because it's what my kids love, and they're, we've, our house is full of them, and I'm reading them all the time. And I see how much delight and joy it brings them, and so I'm I'm drawn to that. Um, Miri from Princess Academy is more like me as a person than any of the other characters I've written. I generally avoid putting too much of myself on purpose into a character because it then starts to be it, it becomes hard to really um, see them clearly. You know, there's a lack. There's, you're too close to them. Um, but but she is, you know reacts and acts more like I would than anyone else. But I did also write three books that are absolutely me because I wrote three graphic novel memoirs, starting with real friends about, you know, growing up in Salt Lake and with an anxiety disorder and struggles with depression, struggles with friendship. So that's all me. Oh, I want to talk about that. So uh, real friends and in fact the character's name is Shannon, I think, right? The main Yes. <laughs> main character. It is me. It's yeah, it's, it's you, an autobiography. Yeah. Yeah. Auto- yeah. Autobiography, yeah. Um the I mean the a lot of problems that you mentioned your anxiety and other things. Uh the central part of this is friendships, right? Uh and yeah. which which can be great strength and also you know, a real source of stress as well, especially at that age. So stressful. And watching my own kids grow up. Um, that's why I wanted to write these stories is because I, I had so much stress about friendship growing up and I wanted to share with them, you know, you're not alone. Um, I went through this too. And it's one thing just to tell your kids that and it's another to be able to hand a kid a book where they can read it for themselves and experience, for, experience it for themselves. And, um, it was very scary. It's the most vulnerable I've ever made myself in my life mm-hmm. is writing these books, uh, really just revealing all of my, you know, revealing my imperfect self at my most vulnerable and setting it out into the world to to do, to be read, to be judged, to be criticized. It's a, it was a scary process for me, and I happily did it with my best friend, Lewin Pham, who is the illustrator of the graphic novels, and having her companionship through the process was invaluable. Um, but... Yes, friendship was very scary for me. I just never really felt like I was one of those kids that was extroverted and desperately wanted a best friend, just somebody who was always there with me, who was uh, who knew me and liked me. And um, but she became 
I was invited to join like the popular group of kids when we were in their class in third grade. And from then on, I was always kind of half in, half out this popular group because I was bookish and awkward and probably just not cool enough to be in their friend group. But my best friend was, so I kind of was. But, you know, you show up at school every day not knowing, oh, do I have friends today or do I not have friends today? And I missed so much school with stomach aches. And now I, I know it's because of the stress of it all. Yeah. Boy, I, I tell people I, I would never want to go back to, especially middle school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Or maybe yes, not even third, elementary school. Yeah. Yeah. My The third book in the, in the trilogy is called Friends Forever, and it's about my eighth grade year at Bryant Intermediate. And oh man, so stressful that age. And but I'm very excited. I'm partnering with a local charity, um, Teen Author Bootcamp, a book drop. And my publisher, I'm going to be doing an assembly in a couple of weeks at Bryant. Um, Bryant is a Title I school with over 80% poverty rate. And our publisher, McMillan, has generously donated books so that every kid at that school will receive a free copy of the book. Mm. What do you tell kids? What do you tell your kids about about these problems? You know, you're desperately wanting a group, and maybe you're not in a group, and maybe you're not with the popular kids. Maybe you're even getting bullied. What do, what do you what do you tell uh, kids? Yeah, bullying was a situation I, I definitely went through. Um, it it's um, first of all, my my main job as a writer is to is to tell the truth. Um, kids can tell when you're not telling the truth. You know, they want to feel an honest story. I've actually received feedback from adults that are worried that these books, Real Friends, Best Friends, and Friends Forever, um, that they are too sad and too hard for kids to read. But it's actually the, the opposite. It's hard for adults to read. It's hard for us to look back and remember how hard it was. For the kids, it's a relief. They read these books, and they get to the end, and they start over, and they read them again. I've met multiple kids that have, you know, will read them 20 times in a week over and over again, um, they're, they're going through it. It's real for them, and it's so such a relief to see it um, mirrored back to them, and it helps them make sense of what's happening to them, and also helps them communicate better with the adults in their lives, because they can point to parts and say, this is how I feel. This is what's happening. And it's good for adults to read them, too, because as hard as it is, it's harder for us to read these and go back there. It's good for us to remember. It helps us be more patient with these kids, what, whether, what they're going through, to remember, oh, yeah, it was hard, and it was confusing, and we have more compassion for them. I, I'm not great at advice. I'm better at writing stories um, that I hope the stories themselves um, are the comfort and the lighthouse for kids. But the one advice I do give is if we're all going to be a little better off if we can have more compassion for ourselves. Mm, okay. If we can talk to ourselves in our heads like we would talk to a dear friend, someone we loved, and turn off that self-criticism, it's, it doesn't actually help motivate us. It just, it just hurts. And the more compassionate we are with ourselves, the more compassionate we are with other people. Yeah, good advice, you know, for any age, right? Yeah. Yeah. I want to move to talking about uh, reading and gender. You've you've written a lot about this and uh, have some uh, interesting thoughts about this. But uh, before I get into that proper, um, I want to talk about uh, let's say you, you have on your website called Stop Shushing the Funny Girls. Um, 
and I, <laughs> I just want to, I just want to read this uh, this past because it's hilariously funny. Uh, as an example, uh, as an example. Uh, so you say that uh, when uh, you and your husband, now husband Dean, were getting married, you made a, a wedding website, and uh, then you got together with an old group of friends. So this uh, involves your friend Mike. So Mike says, yeah. uh, I'll just read this. Mike says, Dean, I loved your wedding website. It's really funny. I kept laughing out loud. Then you say, well, you know, he built the site, but I wrote the content. And Mike says, you typed it? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote it. You typed it up for him? I wrote it. You helped him write it? No, I came up with the words, put them together in sentences, and wrote them down. <laughs> I guess I've just always thought of Dean as the writer, says Mike. I just received my MFA in creative writing. Then he says, and he comes back later, I guess with couples, we're used to just thinking that one of them is the funny one. Then you say you and I were in an improv comedy troupe together. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, all true. Every word of that is true. Poor Mike. Still good friends with him, and he's never lived it down. (laughs) So that that, that is hilariously funny. Uh, But but I guess, you know, stereotypes, right? You have to deal with stereotypes. Yeah. Absolutely. So I've written about about 20 of my books uh, would be considered comedies. And um, I attend a lot of conferences and book festivals where they would have panels that were called funny books. And I was never invited onto one of those panels. And those panels were always men, always 100% men. There is this um, stereotype that, that men are the comedians, that men are funny, and that women are not funny. And I... it. It, it's that that's a prime example where if I'd said something funny out loud, I might not have gotten a laugh because people aren't expecting me to be funny because I'm a woman. When I wrote it and they thought it was a man, it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, isn't that interesting and, and, and sad in a way as well? Um, so tell me about you, you've you've written quite extensively on this and and um, the the reaction that you get. So, so tell me first of all the reaction you get when you go to school assemblies. Um, and oh, yeah. It's, well, it's, I've it's done quite hundreds. gendered. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've, I've done so many school assemblies in uh, over 40 states, and um, I, I've noticed throughout my career, it really began with Princess Academy, because uh, that was my most well-known book. I started being introduced as the author of Princess Academy, and and it sounds so girly, is the word I'm going to use. And um, I, go, I would do signings, and only mothers and their daughters would show up. You know, I just, I was a female-only audience. And I talked to friends of mine who are men, like um, Brandon Sanderson and Brandon Mole, who we've all started our careers around the same time. When they do signings, their signings are full of men and women, boys and girls. And I was exclusively a female-only audience. And I began to realize how we really assume that men's stories are universal and women's stories are only for girls. And that uh, girls should and do read about everyone, but boys will only read about boys. That's the assumption. Boys won't read about girls. Girls will read about boys. But what I discovered is it's not true. I have so many boy readers, but they are embarrassed. That our culture uh, teaches boys to be embarrassed to uh, read. And really what we're saying is boys should be ashamed to care about and empathize with girls. And that's just shockingly sad. Reading a novel is a great exercise in empathy. And if boys are only ever learning to empathize with other boys, they're not being set up to navigate this world very effectively. And what kind of men grow up 
do they grow up to be if they believe that it is not their job or their interest to understand and care about girls and women? Um, and, and it's really the adults that are pushing this narrative. Of course, there's peer shaming. But, for example, one time I did an assembly, and the um, the librarian who introduced me said, girls, I'm so excited. You are going to love Shannon Hale's books. Boys, I expect you to behave anyway. You know, mm. And these sorts of, this is what tells them what they're supposed to believe. So many times I've been at book signings, and a boy will come up to my table to pick up a book, and a parent will pull the boy away and say, no, those are girl books. You know, they're being told right then and there. And then additionally, I've even had assemblies where I've showed up at the school, and the school has pre-sorted the children, and only the girls go to my assembly and the boys remain in class. And as though I'm doing, you know, some kind of gender assembly, I'm talking about writing and storytelling has nothing to do with gender. And when I inquire, when a male writer came to this school, did only the boys attend? And no, in fact, the whole school attended for the male author. So this this has happened to me a lot over the last 15 years, and I've begun to speak up about it more and more. That um, a very simple thing um, that we find ourselves doing is saying that a book about boys are for boys and that a book about girls are for girls. And all we need to do really to begin is just a preposition swap. If a book is about a girl, it's about a girl. We don't have to say who it's for. We don't have to prescribe who the book is for. In fact, uh, I was reading, you've begun to push back at assemblies. The Kind of the, the usual thing that would happen, apparently, um, you know, we're going to talk about... Uh, you know, whatever, GI Joe, just to use it's not not the case, but and and the, the boys cheer, right? But then uh, you can talk about princesses and uh, the boys boo, so that they feel yeah. like they can boo what the what they think the girls would like. Tell me what to what you're doing now. Apparently, you're pushing back a bit. Yes, it really happened. I wrote a series called Ever After High that was based on a Mattel toy series. And when I would show these slideshows, I would, first I would explain who Mattel is, the largest toy uh, maker in the world, and they make things like Matchbox cars, and, you know, the boys would cheer. And the girls, you know, too, would cheer. There, there were no girls booing Matchbox cars or Justice League figures. And then I would say Barbie, and the boys would boo. And, then, and I showed the image of Ever After High, the dolls and the books, and the boys would boo. And it's quite a shocking experience, actually, Um just to feel that, to be a person up alone on a stage and and be booed like that for something that you've done. And it was also interesting that the teachers almost never reacted. They didn't shush the boys who were booing their guest speaker. It felt like this is just what boys do. This is how they are. And I did start pushing back. I used to just let it go. But I realized... Um, it wasn't just about me. I was thinking about how that's affecting all the girls sitting in the audience, that I'm saying that that's okay, that boys just ridicule and mock things that they like or that they perceive to be girly, again, using that word in quotes. Um, so I did start to address it more and more and just said, that's not okay. That's not okay. I'm up here donating my time and you're booing me, but additionally, you're booing things that other people care about. You don't have to like things. Um, you don't have to like everything, but you also don't have to mock what other people like. Uh, that's that's cruelty. And uh, encouraging kids to base who they are as a person on what they like, not what they don't like. 
when we identify ourselves by what we love instead of what we hate, that's just a, a more a more healthy thing. But also, I just needed the girls to see that it was okay to stand up for myself and and to say, no, that's not okay. Just one more thing before we take another break, uh, a related topic. Um, you said, uh, reading a Washington Post uh, op-ed, you say the more we try to tell kids which books are for them, the more reluctant kids are to read. Um, you know, kids know what they want, right? And you, and especially if adults yeah. are forcing something on them. So what, um, so, so what do you do? What do you do in your household? Uh, we have lots of, lots of books. Um, we used to do lots of trips to the library. Now we just own them, um, because I get too many library funds and I'm terrible. And also I just love books. I like to support writers. Um, but we have lots of books at lots of different age levels, lots of different genres, and I just have them everywhere. And I don't tell them they can't read any of them. I, I, I tell them, if you're reading something and you're uncomfortable, you can always put the book down. You never have to finish a book that you're not liking or you're uncomfortable with. And if you read something that you're not sure what it means, I will read the book with you, and we can talk about it. But otherwise, I don't limit what they read. And... They read widely, and I can never predict what they're going to like. And there are plenty of studies to also back this up. The more we tell kids, that book's not for you. In fact, I've got a picture book coming out next one called This Book is Not for You. And it's, it's exactly about that. Um, the more we tell them that, the less choice they have, the less likely they are to read. We also know that more the kids read for pleasure, the stronger their literacy skills are. And literacy skills help in every area of their schoolwork, in every area of their life. And as you said, uh, is, is reading reading fiction especially is a deeply empathetic experience, which, which we can all use, right? Absolutely. Famously, people um, have said that books are both mirrors and windows. And every kid deserves to read books that see that they can see themselves reflected back. They also need to read books that are windows into other worlds that they don't understand. And that's how we gain empathy for people different from us. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take another break. Uh, we're talking with Shannon Hale, uh, author of the Princess Academy series and uh, many others, including the latest Amethyst, which is on our UPR community book list. Um, and uh, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, Austinland. Um, you you have a <laughs> I love this. I love this uh, part of your website. You you uh, write a letter to Janeites, dear Janeites, <laughs> which I really related to. Anyway, we'll talk about Austinland when we come back. More following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. Support also comes from USU Extension's Healthy Relationships Utah Initiative, teaching how to navigate life changes, emotion, communication, and conflict. More information about community courses at healthyrelationshipsutah.org. Thank you to everyone who submitted designs to our annual UPR Art Mug Contest. We had awesome work come in from all over Utah. Submissions have closed now, and you have until March 1st to vote for your favorite design. It's your vote that will determine the winner, and their design will be printed on this year's UPR Mug, available during our spring member drive. So what would you like to see on your mug? Tell us by going to upr.org and casting your vote by noon on March 1st. Just two more hours left to cast your vote for UPR's 2022 Spring Art Mug. Vote now at upr.org. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment now with Shannon Hale. She's based in Utah. She's New York Times bestselling author of the Princess Academy series, Rapunzel's Revenge, Austin Land, and many other books. The latest is Amethyst, which is on our UPR book list. Um, so Shannon Hale, uh, I want to talk about uh, Austin Land. Um, this is uh, your book, which was made into a movie starring Carrie Russell. Um, and so for people not familiar with this, uh, Jane Hayes is a young New Yorker. I'm just reading the blurb. Real romantic problem. No man she meets can compare to her one true love, Mr. Darcy, from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. When a wealthy relative bequeaths her a trip to an English resort for Austen fanatics, her fantasies of meeting the perfect Regency area gentlemen suddenly become realer than she could ever have imagined. So folks go to this resort and they dress up in Regency costumes and I guess assume a character. Um, Jane assumes character of Miss Erstwhile, which is, I, you know, I love that. I, I, I laugh every time I, I think of that. <laughs> um, so, um, what, tell me about the, where this came from, the origin of this. It came from my own obsession with Pride and Prejudice. I was not a fanatical kind of kid. Like, I never had, like, crushes on boy groups or actors or stuff like that. Um, but... Pride and Prejudice did a number on me, especially the BBC of six VHS um, miniseries during Colin Firth. And so several of my friends also had this kind of weird obsession. And I started to think, what would it, you know, how, how could it have been that great to live at that time? How could you, like, try it on for size to see if it really would feel that great? And I started coming up with a story where there was an immersive um, experience with actors. Um, I kind of was thinking about, we used to play these how to host a murder parties. Where everybody would take a character, you know, and play act for an evening. And that's where the root of it came. Um, so I wrote the book. It took me seven years, but eventually I um, worked with Jerusha Hess, who was the director, to co-write the screenplay. And we filmed it in England in 2011. It was a fantastic experience. Oh, wonderful. So you had a hand in writing idea, do you think the the film came out well? Oh, yes. So much fun. Yes. Um, because I, I got to write, co-write the screenplay. A lot of the changes in the movie from the book were, were mine, were things that I wanted to change. Um, I have no problem uh, making those kinds of changes. I, it's a different medium, you know, film from book. The book always exists, and once we're moving into a film, I'm like, okay, how could we take advantage of this visual medium? What would be fun? One of my favorite things was um, in the in the book they they put on a little play. They do a little theatrical, and in the movie, oh, I just wanted to blow that up big. And it's the night we shot it uh, with a night shoot. Um, the first take, they ran through the. It's about a four minute scene. They ran through the whole theatrical from Jennifer Coolidge climbing out of a clamshell till the end when all the characters die on stage <laughs> and they ran it through in one take with a wide shot called cut and then 120 people were in the middle of the woods 120 people all like collapsed to the ground in laughter like all of us were just holding it in so hard during the take to not laugh out loud and then it was just like a laughter bomb exploded and shook the trees. Uh, we were weeping um, through every take. It was so it was so fun to make a comedy. <laughs> you you in this letter to Jayneites, by the way. Um, you uh, by the way, you write. Uh, you're just a lay fan. Um, 
love the movie adaptations. You haven't. You just read the novels, not the juvenilia, the the, <laughs> the fragments or the biographies. Uh, what, have you had any reaction from hardcore Janites? Yeah, I did. That's why I wrote that <laughs> uh, when the book first came out. I, I, um, a lot of people, and I, you know, I respect this. A lot of people love Jane Austen so much. It's almost like a religion. It's almost like it's you know scripture text, and they don't want anybody messing with it. So I just wanted to be upfront with, you know, here's where I am, here's who I am, and this may not be for you. Please don't write me nasty emails and letters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one, of your, one of your points in this letter I, I found fascinating. You say, I believe categorizing her novels, Jane Austen's novels, simply as romances is dismissive and untrue. Nevertheless, it's precisely this aspect of her stories that I work to explore with this novel, particularly in how they are portrayed in movies. And then, of course, your book got made into a movie, which is which kind of an interesting cycle there. Yeah, it really is. I I read Pride and Prejudice, you know, several times in different eras of my life, and I found what I found fascinating is in different time periods, it read differently to me. Sometimes it did read as a romance. Sometimes it was just a straight up comedy. Sometimes it was a feminist social commentary. You know, um, I think that's one thing that makes a really great book is that it can change with time. Um, it's still as relevant today as it was then. I really think she was the greatest novelist. If you read her contemporaries, nobody was doing what she was doing. She was a a genius. But I think because she was a woman and she wrote about people, you know, getting married and searching for their partner, um, it was dismissed as like chick lit or like, you know, light, fluffy, fair. Um, There's so much more there. It, It could just be romance and it would still be great. But there is also so much more there. Yeah, certainly true. Just have a couple minutes left. Uh, I don't want to neglect Amethyst, your latest. Um, uh, tell me just briefly a couple of a couple minutes here about Amethyst. Well, my husband Dean grew up reading comics, Marvel and DC, and absolutely loved them. So uh, DC came to us a few years ago and said, "Would you like to write some graphic novels for young readers?" We were like, "Yes." Like, what characters would you want to do? And we got to pick, which was amazing. And so the two we picked were Wonder Woman and Amethyst. And we wrote uh, Diana, Princess of the Amazons, about young Diana, who grows up to be Wonder Woman. And this new one, Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld, is a, a girl on Earth who's forgotten that she's a princess in another realm. It's it's high fantasy, sword and sorcery, plus superhero, just tremendous fun. What uh, What are you working on now? What do you got coming out? More graphic novels. I've got um, a new picture book. I do Itty Bitty Kitty Corn, the most adorable picture book series uh, ever because I get to work with Lewin Fam. That comes out in two weeks. Um, I'm working on m- more middle grade novels and adult novels and screenplays. I just, Tom, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just can't <laughs> say no. <laughs> well, well we're, we're glad you got that wrong with you. You keep writing, so it, we'll have more books from you. That's, <laughs> that's great. Well, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop. From Havana to Logan, Utah, tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. 
Support for 2022 legislative coverage on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and the USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, and education. Information at idrpp.usu.edu. If you're a regular listener of Undisciplined, you've probably noticed some changes lately. That's because Shoshana Buxbaum, who took over as our lead host last year, has accepted a new position with Science Friday. Yeah, Science Friday. We're tremendously excited for Shoshana, even if we are really sad to see her go. But every change is an opportunity, and this change has given us a chance to work with some really great guest hosts. And I'm excited to tell you today that thanks to the support of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, we've hired a new lead host. I think you're going to love Nalini Nadkarni. She's an ecologist, a teacher, and a really talented science communicator. And you'll start hearing her voice on Undisciplined. Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org. listeners, I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio.